0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. Hi, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats. Before we start the episode, I want to take a moment to highlight an organization that we talk about in our interview. Together with my daughter, Katie, and a group of local military veterans, we have been supporting the Cleveland Field Office of the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants as it works to resettle our Afghan allies arriving in Northeast Ohio, many of whom fled Afghanistan with nothing more than the clothes they were wearing. I'm Katie Harbaugh, and working with USCRI, I helped coordinate an effort to deliver 90 Thanksgiving meals to Afghan families who just celebrated their first Thanksgiving in America. From the moment a refugee family steps off the plane, USCRI is there to provide them with food, clothing, and safe, secure housing. With your help, USCRI connects refugees to the tools they need to find gainful employment and achieve self-sufficiency. Please visit refugees.org to donate to Ohio's refugee resettlement effort and help our allies build new lives with dignity in the United States. Thank you, and enjoy the episode.
1: So at some point, I think you'll, if you trace the history of conservatism in America, it's just a different code each time. And so today's code is CRT. What does that mean? Nothing. It just means we don't want people to learn about the historic racism in our country, which was founded And so I do think that Trump's just dressed in a new coat.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Fred Wellman, senior advisor at the Lincoln Project, which I'm gonna assume most of our listeners are familiar with. Fred's resume could fill an entire podcast episode, but his Twitter bio summarizes it pretty well. It reads, West Point, Harvard, and Ranger School, truly educated in Iraq. Hashtag welcome them here. Fred, we'll get to all of that. Welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: That's great to be here. I appreciate it, Ken.
0: So you started out with Lincoln Project as their veterans guy. Uh, yep. Why was that perspective important to them? And, and just to give you the context, we love... Interviewing Republican dissidents on, on this show, we've had Steve, Steve Schmidt, your colleague, and Miles Taylor, and a, and a, yep. and a litany of others. Uh, but the veterans' voice has become a a pretty powerful one
1: within the um, within this movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I started off as a senior advisor. Actually, I am technically back to being a senior advisor again. But I was a senior advisor for Veterans Affairs uh, starting in July of last year, and and it came with a recognition uh, with the founders of the of the co-founders of the Lincoln Project that that there was a a place there. For us to influence the election and show that the, the Trump and the Trump movement, you know, really wasn't supportive of veterans. It wasn't a clear cut win. You know, we always say traditionally the veteran community and the military community has been conservative and Republican, but you and I know that, that has been a changing factor in the last 20 years, especially as the new generation of veterans and, and service members serve for various reasons. And and we saw an opportunity to go directly at organizing that community and 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 say, look, you know, there's other options. Uh, and so that's, that was pretty much my mission when I started. So we went very directly at that in the campaign. I, I placed ads in, uh, military times. We placed ads in Stars and Stripes. People thought we were crazy. Um, but you did see a change in the numbers. Do you
0: think veterans are in some ways more susceptible to that kind of persuasion? given i don't know how to put it but um, there's there's less of a stovepiping of information in military communities especially when deployed than there is in you know in some political groupings here stateside
1: well i think there's a host of good reasons why the veteran community is um more purple than it used to be, uh, is more available to, you know, talk about the real issues and and recognizing the changes in our country. I mean, we do say, you know, swear an oath to the constitution. Um, and what we've seen in the last, you know, I think five years especially has been some very direct attacks on what that oath means. And we've seen some vast politicization of the military in, in those efforts. So, so a lot of us have really changed. I mean, you, you talk about Republican dissidents. Um, I walked away, really, the final straw for me was um, when Trump, you know, said John McCain wasn't a hero. That was Trump. But what bothered me was that so many within the Republican Party were like, eh, okay. And I was like, wait a minute, this is it. And that was a big sign for me, because of a lot of our fellow veterans, I mean, that would have been a red line for any other candidate in history. Anytime in history, If if Obama had said something like that, or Clinton, my God, it would have been I mean, fire and brimstone, they would have burned the building down. Um, Instead, we found ourselves in a political time where many in our community were like, "Eh, well, yeah, he was kind of a bad guy. It was the justification for this sort of authoritarian uh, macho-ness that that Trump tries to portray. And I I knew that I didn't have a home anymore in that party. Um, And so I knew I wasn't alone in that. As I talked to more and more of our peers and more fellow veterans and service members, they were horrified that. Um, the values that we swore oath to, and the loyalty we saw to each other, was so easily eroded. So, so I knew we had an opportunity to have that conversation within the community more than we had in the past. And and I knew that our 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 opponents uh, on the in the political spectrum um, were taking for granted that vote. Right. I mean, it's just they just assumed that no matter what they did, military and veterans would line right up behind the conservative movement. And I think that's not true anymore.
0: Can you talk about that phony machinist that you just called out, and why it has such a weird appeal? I mean, you call this out on Twitter sometimes with folks like Josh Hawley yep. and his appeals to manhood. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll let you editorialize. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna question Josh Hawley's manhood. It's too easy. But yeah. why is has that become just such an important? Um, like plank in in this in this new republican platform appeals to manhood
1: well i think i think you've always i mean if you look at the history of authoritarianism you I mean, look at the the history of the of movements that are more um Fascist, you know, that, that, that dirty word. You know, you do see it's always an appeal to the manliness. It's a it's the strong man, right? They want to see strength. You look at the the rise of the movements in Germany. It was the, in Italy, it was it was the strong man who was who's the country was downtrodden and now we need a strong man. It, there's always been this fasc, this this sort of uh fetishization of the macho, the masculine, the the manly man. I mean some people call it toxic masculinity or not. <laughs> and so you see that so often within authoritarian movements because that's that's what they're looking at. Wow, he's a strong man. He's not going to take shit from anybody. And let's be honest, the military is full of very, you know, a lot of those folks, right? I mean, we we love it. We love the strong guy. We love the general. We love the great. You know, the, we we venerate our heroes like we always we should. But that when those two paths cross, uh, it could become a toxic and dangerous mixture. And then you see, you know, people like you said, like Josh Mandel, or or, or the most ridiculous things that the lady who's running for uh, lieutenant governor of Virginia right now. Uh, Sears, she did an ad like with a gun, this hodgepodge weapon she had built for her, I guess, and I, I'm going to take on the bad guys like I did Semper Fi. It's like, she was a Marine like 20 years ago for like three years and she, I think she was logistics tech. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, or or you see um, in the last campaign, someone I went after very hard down, um, down in, uh, oh God, Georgia, who had been a chaplain, and was posting pictures of his uniform, uh, how he was going to take on the, the left. And I was like, you're a chaplain. You didn't even carry a gun, for God's sake. It's like, it's just ridiculous fetishization of military service and ridiculous fetishization of this masculine. It leads to people like Josh Hawley, who's, who's now made – you know masculinity. You know his framework. It's like my God. I mean, you know, you and your tucked-in polo at the at the wine store doesn't scream. You know, Mister ba- Bad guy. You know, or or how every single ad now starts with a gun. For it, it seems like every Republican has to run uh, with an ad at the at the range or some ridiculous thing. It's it's it does go to because you, you you're exactly the thing, Ken. You're you're saying to yourself. Well, I understand how this is conservative. Well, it's not. It's not conservative. It's it's authoritarian. Uh, and that's where the line. I think if you take our political framework right now and you draw a straight line through it, it's not necessarily a political party issue, right? It's become tied to a certain political party. But this fetishization of the strongman, the fetishization of of uh, victimhood, you know, and how we have to overcome and fight back um, runs like a a bright red line through through the Republican Party right now. Um, and so, what do we got? We've got a guy, a guy who. Took a gun illegally, crossed state lines, wasn't even allowed to have a gun at 17. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse. And he's being venerated as a hero for killing people that – he had no right to be there. He had no reason to be there. Uh, but that strong man, you know, that – that night, I literally saw a post today. One of our colleagues in the Marine Corps uh, posted screen grabs of a Marine Corps uh, E9 – Posting on Facebook about the night of Kenosha and how you know how he the 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 Kyle Rittenhouse mile where you where you run six hundred thirty eight feet being chased by riders then gun them down it's it's just it's terrifying is what it is.
0: Does it depend on Trump? And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean right. you're describing a culture of the right. strong man. And a lot of people tie that
1: like inextricably to Trump himself. But I'm yeah. wondering if Trump isn't bigger than a single person. Well, I think we've that's the thing we say. That's why that's why you use the term of the Lincoln Project as as Trumpism, right? It's it is a modern authoritarian movement that latched onto Trump as the guy. Um, and that's the big question now is if Trump's gonna be the, the leader of that movement or is that movement able to be picked up by somebody else? I do think that's why you see Josh Hawley talking about masculinity. You see, you know pear-shaped, you know, Josh Mandel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, wanting, wanting violence for our at Judeo-Christian, you know, there, there is a, there's this great effort by people who have no right to have a, any sort of masculinity, uh, you know, uh, argument fighting for that mantle. Um, and so uh, I guess that is the question that I think too many people thought, and it does get us to where we are today. I think too many people thought that with the departure of Trump from the White House, that everything was going to be okay. We're going to go back to normal. It's something I say a lot if you follow me. I, you know the, the desire to go back to normal. Oh, now Trump's gone. We can go back to normal. Like No, we can't. That the movement that encouraged Trump and the January 6th events that occurred show us that there is a great desire for more of that movement and that what we've seen is just the beginning of it. Um, January 6th was a practice run, um, and we have to treat it as such. I've heard former president trump described
0: as the consummate follower mm. that he has his finger on the pulse of uh, of where his most uh, radical i shouldn't call them followers because their followers come leaders right yeah. where they want to go and he was able to pick on up on that before anyone else and now you have a, a major american political party that is terrified of its own mob yeah, Which it which it feeds and yep. it becomes a a vicious cycle. Which suggests to me that um that it endures post Trump. Yes. Is that absolutely. the Lincoln Project's assessment?
1: When you talk about defeating not just Trump, but Trumpism. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That that the GOP as a whole, that the Republican Party as a whole, has given in to their base instincts. Um, if you saw one of our most recent ads, we talked about the Southern strategy of Lee Atwater, and you know, and people beat us up. It's funny how many people beat us up because many of my co-founders, my 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 my, my boss is there. We're part of that movement. Yeah, exactly. We were. <laughs> Stuart Stevens literally wrote a book called "It Was All a Lie." I mean, w- there's no question in my mind that my my for- my bosses there at the Lincoln Project don't understand their role in all this. So it's kind of funny when you see people attacking him for like like I, I love it. Hell, I get beat up for. Uh, I think my favorite one is the the right wing nut jobs, especially the veteran nut jobs. I love to post picture the screen grabs of me criticizing Joe Biden back in 2012. It's like, yeah, yeah, I was a Republican then. So anyway, <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> um, and so. so, So what we realize is that the Republican Party – there was always this appeal that – it was the Southern strategy back in the day. It was – there was always a dog whistle, sort of a a head nod to the baser elements of racism, the baser elements of – you know, the, the, the fear of socialism, right? All those things in the past. So there was always that element. And then at the growth of the social conservatives, the growth of the religious right conservatives within the movement very much encouraged all the way back to Ronald Reagan has grown to a point where they've over, there is no longer a, a Reagan Republican. I talk about it quite a bit, that the Republican Party is almost in three ways now. There's the Reagan Republicans who, who still are trying desperately to hold on to what was party. And that's your, your maybe your McConnell's per se and others, but it's still about power. You got your Trumpist, Right. And then those are the guys who really love the the manly man, the you know, how we're going to take our country back, make America great. And now you've got this third element, which is even scarier, which is the I call them the January 6th insurrectionist, um, where not only they, they're ready to act on it. And, and there's a large swath. There's recent polls showing that um, something like a third of Republicans um, believe that violence will be necessary. Uh, to take over the country or to lead the country. So we've got a fate. We're in a very dangerous place in America today where a large portion of a major American party believes that violence is a part of the political spectrum and should be, uh, and constantly have this weird fetishism for like a new civil war, which is hilarious because they forget that many of us on the airside also have guns. So good luck with that. <laughs> but it, it's just, um, it is a very scary movement. So we at Lincoln Project have recognized, I think. I think for us, we always knew that it would not die with Trump. We, we talked about it before the election, even if we won. But I think January 6th made it extremely clear to everyone at the Lincoln Project that we are far from over. And in many ways, we're just starting. Um, and that, that is why we can't slow down. You can't take your foot of the gas. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And
0: cartoons.
1: Think behind the music for the stuff we love.
0: Check out our website at two DesignersWalkIntoabar.com.
1: And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Greetings from Evergreen
0: Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads... I'd love your perspective on this as a former Republican who spends most of your professional daylight hours with fellow former Republicans. Yeah. Is that uh, appeal to authoritarianism, that hearkening back to uh, to better times, um, is, is it simply in the nature of conservatism? It's definitional appeal to a status quo and a... Um, and the fear of disrupting power structures that that benefited for generations, those at the top. I mean, is it conservatism itself that is part of the problem?
1: Always, without question. I mean, let's let's let, you know, let's be honest. It was it was always the issue, right? It was always about conserving a status quo, conserving a power structure based on. And, and let's be honest, in America, it's been based on in many ways a white power structure, a financial structure that that allows um, you know very rich white people to stay in power. Um, And so it really has only just gone through threads. I read a fascinating article today in The Post about, you know, the analysis of the Virginia campaign today. And how this this whole CRT thing, which Glenn Youngkin's trying to pile onto, has traces route. its route. It's, it's right back to the Daughters of the American—Daughters uh, of the Civil uh, Confederacy. You know, there's always been this line drawn between maintaining the power structures that they liked. I mean, that's why—I it's. it's I laugh when people go, oh, God, we're today. Everything is socialist. I'm like— Dude, you don't have to look far for that. It's always been that way. Social Security was called socialism. I mean, the New Deal was socialism. The federal highway system was called socialism back in the day (laughs) by, quote, conservatives, right? Anything that had to do with allowing, you know, larger access to our our economy, larger access to our society by those who weren't seen, weren't deemed the correct people um, at that moment— and it's easy to forget it wasn't always just white people. It was also the right white people. Um, my I'm Italian. I'm half English and half Italian. My English side came over in 1640. My Italian side came over in the early 1900s. Um, we were we were forced into bad parts of town as Italians, right? So so that you know the Catholics. It's easy to forget that in, when John F. Kennedy ran for office, he had to convince a large swath of America that a Catholic could be president. Uh, and you don't get much whiter than John Kennedy, okay? <laughs> so so there's always been this long line of, of very specific conservative movement to maintain a certain power structure. And the, the, I think in many ways, it's just a different code every time, right? I mean, what we've seen is, and I bought into it, I was a defense – I used to call myself a, a defense hawk, a conservative defense hawk. I was a, a fiscal conservative, right? And in many ways, I still am. Uh, but I now realize that just means, um, I just don't want people wasting my damn tax money on stupid stuff. And I don't want to be weak uh, as a nation. I want us to be sure we can win our wars when we, when we fight them. Um, but 20 years of war taught me we don't need to be at war all the freaking time. Uh, and so at some point, I think you'll, if you trace the history of conservatism in America, it's just a different code each time. And so today's code is CRT. What does that mean? Nothing. It just means we don't want people learning about the historic racism of our country, which was founded on. And so, I do think that Trump's just dressed in a new coat.
0: I think this is a a good segue into your Twitter bio uh, hashtag. Welcome them here. Yes. Uh, why Why is that important enough to you to put at the very Top of your bio. I think I know what it's about, but why don't you? Yeah. Don't well, you explain? It's, about, it's,
1: it's about our Afghan allies. It's about all of them. You know, I fought for many years for our interpreters and others who had the opportunities to come here, and then it was constantly being battled. Um, I was a mentor for No One Left Behind, Matt Zeller, who's now at. Uh, who now just got a job at Iraq, Afghanistan, Friends of America, as a matter of fact. But the idea that we should, those who fought with our, uh, by our side should be welcomed. But but I've also matured to the point where I, I believe all refugees, we should welcome refugees, we should welcome immigrants. I mean, the, the ultimate irony right now is that while the same people who are saying um, they are angry because they can't get takeout from their favorite restaurant because there's not enough employees, don't see the bright red line to Stephen Miller and Donald Trump's Complete stifling of refugees and immigrants, <laughs> you know. And so it's you know we we bring our economy to a halt and we stop new people coming in. I'm, I'm just a big believer for the of course for the last three months um, since the events in Afghanistan, I've been very passionate about uh, making sure our, our allies are are welcomed and and already seeing the racism. You just have to look last weekend this ridiculous, which it turns out to be completely false, uh, terrorist warning of ISIS, uh, an ISIS sleeper cell. Uh, which was twisted into one. By the way, it was fake. Two, it was being twisted by conservative commentators into because we have Afghan refugees in Northern Virginia. So is now our our Afghan allies are apparently you know terrorists. It's just this constant battle to convince people. And and where does it start for me? 2004, uh, four months after I left Iraq, my first interpreter, Bassam Yusuf Sabri, was murdered, beheaded by al-Qaeda because he was a interpreter for the United States forces. I spent the next nine months working with a wonderful team of smarter people than me, uh, who managed to extract his wife, his widow, and his kids out of Iraq and get them settled in the United States, where now his widow is the American citizen. And so we owe them a debt of gratitude and a debt of their lives to protect them, so I've I've been I watched in horror as the events in Afghanistan unfolded. Um, having never served in Afghanistan, I didn't participate, I couldn't be one of the guys who was like guiding people at the airport. I had no business. I, I, I one thing I've learned over the years is uh, I, I st- try to stay in my lane. Right, <laughs> I'll do I'll do anything people ask me to, but you know if I if I don't know what I'm doing, I try to stay out of it. And there were smarter people than me on that job, but I could welcome them here. So I I did what I did, which is I I found our local refugee settlement organization and volunteered. Uh so that's what I ask of people.
0: Can you talk about that just as a as a plug? We've got uh USCRI here in Cleveland,
1: which is doing yeah. an
0: incredible job. Um yeah. what which one are you supporting? International in, in
1: Institute of St. Louis is the local settlement organization here in St. Louis. They handle refugee resettlement in St. Louis and then about a hundred mile circle around St. Louis. Um so they've they plug right into the US government. They're settle, they're expecting uh, somewhere around 1600, probably Afghans uh, from this movement right now. So, and the amazing thing that the gratifying thing is uh, what I did, what I've done for them in the past year now is help them with the, the just overwhelming number of donations they got from the people of St. Louis. At one point, cars were you know literally circling the the block uh, around the around the facility because they are dropping off so much stuff for our Afghan allies. So, um, I always tell people, look, they always people come to me all the time. what can I do? How can I help? Well, start local, you know. Google refugee resettlement and your city. Those, you know, and believe it or not, it'll come, like you said, S-E-R-I and yours, or it could be it could be the Catholic Charities, it could be Lutheran Services. Um, there's a number of organizations across the country in each city, and they're all handled locally. Um, so start local.
0: Yep, well we uh we dropped off food and uh and and diapers and uh, baby crib and a bunch yeah. of stuff just yeah. last night. Um uh, one more plug before we we get back to our topic. Um housing is just such yeah. A, a critical bottleneck right now right. Um, in Cleveland, and I'm sure everywhere. Yeah. Um. You know, hats off to Airbnb for providing a bit of a stopgap for some of these families, but you know, yeah. you're talking tens of thousands trying to get out of the camps, um, and we just don't have the housing for them. No. So if and you've got, yeah, if you've got spare room,
1: um, reach out. The warehouse. You know, it, it's been it's been gratifying here in St. Louis to see. This incredible coalition come together between the city and the and, the, and their local representatives and the various housing authorities, the various business authorities, business organizations have all been coming together to create opportunities with housing and upgrading. And and then plugs to to our core partner. What I've been seeing gratifying too, Ken, is um, those organizations that I've worked with for years in my previous job at ScoutComs, my my firm that focused on veterans. You know, Starbucks, Home Depot. Um, Companies have been stepping up. Starbucks is reaching out, uh, saying, hey, we want to try to get these guys jobs. Um, So it's really been gratifying to see the close parallels between those who serve veterans and those who want to serve our Afghan allies as they come over. It's been really gratifying to see them step up to the plate.
0: Awesome. Are you a dog person, Fred?
1: I am. I, do you, I, do am. I hear
0: a, a dog drinking from the yes, water bowl I right apologize. now? Yes. I apologize. Yes. Don't. River, River came over <laughs> to check out what's going on over here. At some point, my cat will
1: walk across the screen as well. <laughs> it's a uh,
0: we're animal people too, so it's all good. It is. Um, yeah. I want to. I want to get back to the Lincoln Project. You have a an mo that really sets you apart, and this part of the conversation is going to be about the role, frankly, of anger. In politics, but I want to read how uh, James Carville described the Lincoln Project. And man, I wish I had it in his voice. Um, I'm not going to try to try to recreate it, but he said, "Let me tell you, the Lincoln Group and the bulwark, uh, these never Trumper Republicans, the Democrats could learn a lot from them. They're mean, they fight hard, and we don't fight like that." Well, where does that come from? Is that also in the nature of of being a historically Republican? Do you just have that, <laughs> that mean streak?
1: Well, I, I, it's funny being a black hat guy in a white hat world. Um, you know, it was really unusual for me when I joined the – I remember when I joined the Lincoln Project, one of my first meetings, I said, well, what are our policies? Like, oh, we don't do policies. We're – you know we're 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 just trying to win elections i'm like huh and the one thing i've learned that that republicans do really well compared to our democratic colleagues is um the focus on winning elections look your great policy and your huge um plan is great but if you don't win the election, it's moot right and and too often um the democrats are looking past the election to the big policy right and too often as you know they're happy to lose an election for you know for the right reasons right (laughs) and 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 there's a fundamental lack of understanding um some people call it a purity test a lot on the left that is infuriating um which is a whole separate topic but the thing about us, as being the Lincoln project is we recognized early on that the, the choice was decent versus indecent. It was authoritarian versus democracy. And I think January 6th made our point clear, right? Is is we have an entire party and a political organization dedicated to rolling back our rights as Americans, the very foundations of our voting rights, the very foundations of our ability to access our elected leaders, adding violence to our our spectrum. Whereas You know, again on on our our, our partners and the in the Democratic parties just seem want to get back to normal. They want to pass. There's still this belief that they just passed good legislation. I mean, name one piece of legislation that, that Mitch McConnell passed in all those four years under Trump. You know, the tax cut. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> there just isn't. They're not trying to do big things. But yet, they keep winning elections, right? And so I think you have to, I think there's a, the, what we believe the Lincoln Project and, and as former Republicans is, you win the election, then you can pass your policy. You win a lot of elections, you can pass a lot of great policies. And now we're at a point now, even to the point where like, win an election, We'll lose our democracy. And so, yeah, we will be cutthroat. Um, We've pulled some stunts. I mean, and the thing about us is we'll, you know, I'll be honest, not everything works. Um, Some are bad ideas, (laughs) you know, some blow up in our face. Some some ads have been a disaster. Some stunts have been a disaster recently, you know, we're not perfect. Um, But the thing about us that I've enjoyed, you know, being both the senior advisor and then I was the executive director is that we're willing to take the shot right? We don't overthink it. Um, The process is not a long, people would probably be shocked at the process we use within the Lincoln Project to get things done. Let me tell you something, it's not long, okay? It's just act, go, go, go. I mean, I tell the story often of, uh, you know, just in my experience, uh, we were days from the election. It was a Friday before the election. Uh, I was, I had pretty much done all the organizing I could do at that point, right? And so I got the idea, we saw Trump saying that he only wanted votes counted on November 3rd. He didn't want any, that, you know, after that, that should be cut off, right? Well, those are absentee ballots. You and I know that most military ballots arrive after the election day very often, that many absentee ballots don't make it from overseas. With the Postal Service slows downs that he managed to implement, there are even more absentee ballots. So what I heard very clearly was we're going to disenfranchise military voters. So I went to my leadership. I said, hey, I'd like to do an ad with a celebrity uh, highlighting the fact that uh, absty ballots are mostly military. And, and literally Reed Gale's like, great, I love it, go. Okay. <laughs> Have I written at many at that point? I'd written a couple ads. I wrote, I wrote one for the Vimmons, I wrote one for Sally Sullenberger, I helped write one. But I was like, okay. And, and literally within within eight hours, I'd recruited Mark Hamill. Um, I'd gotten our videographers up and running. I'd I'd helped write a script. i actually wrote in a script, um, gotten it to Mark Hamill over the weekend. Saturday, he cut his tape. Um, Saturday night it was in, in edits. By Sunday, I had my ad and and we issued it, you know, to, to about 48 hours for the election. That's how kind of our process is very simple. It's it's get things done, throw it against the wall, every cha- everything, you know, see what works. Um, so that's very different. We didn't, fo- you didn't hear a focus group, did you? You didn't hear, <laughs> you know, you didn't, you didn't hear a poll, right? We, you didn't hear A and B, you know, beta testing. No, we, we just go, um, which is fun.
0: But as you said, it it does lead occasionally to some uh, yep. some backfiring <laughs> oh, yeah. attempts. H- how do you respond to to that criticism that your Shoot first, aim later approach. And I'm paraphrasing, no, uh, but no. I'm putting words in your mouth. No. Um, that it adds to the vicious cycle. Um, and you know, I gotta, I gotta call out the tiki torches stunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, how do you respond to the criticism that your, your appeal to anger and fear is just part of this
1: larger vortex that's damaging our, uh, our politics? Well, I would say that people should be angry about the fact that Glenn Youngkin was in Charlottesville during the trial, for, uh, the civil trial against those who organized that event and still refused to condemn it. And that was the point of that trick. it Was it perfect? I, don't, I didn't put that one together, but, it, you know, it is what it is. But the point was very clear that the Republicans are madder about the stunt than they are about the fact that, Five years ago, or you know, four years ago, there was a mass march of white supremacists carrying tiki torches, saying Jews will not replace us. And the Republican candidate for governor refuses to condemn that. Refuses to condemn the guy who thought there was good friends. You know, so so again, the the I my frustration with my friends in the Democratic side is they're more worried about that than they are about the actual fight. They're more worried about fact. They're afraid to be angry. It's like it's a strange thing. It's like it's okay to be angry because you know why Republicans show up to vote is because. They, they're fighting, they're fighting. They, they believe they're fighting for the whole soul of our country. Uh, and too often, I think my peers in the Democratic side are just want to freaking hug it out or something. I, I, so, no, I, I have no problem appealing to people's anger and their emotions because if you want to know how Republicans win elections, that's why. Just watch the video that came out yesterday from the the, the good liars, whom I love, just love. Uh, they have a movie coming out with our friends at the Midas Touch uh, called the, uh, the Believers. But just look at the gentleman who's a retired Air Force guy wearing an Air Force hat. Saying that he's the most important issue for him in this election, in Virginia is critical race theory, teaching critical race theory, and the guy's like, "But they don't teach it." He goes, well, "What is it? What is critical race theory?" They go, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I'm against it. <laughs> he literally has no f idea what he's talking about. He has no idea that we're critical. He has no idea that CRT isn't taught in any school in Virginia. But what they've done successfully on the right is painted any kind of teaching. Of history that's uncomfortable for white people um the the, the lady on the, sh- on the on the circus here today was interviewed literally said that teaching about slavery makes white kids feel guilty about being white and she, she doesn't like that that's not up to the schools to teach that it's like that's what they're angry about that's what they're going to the polls to stop and so no amount of us saying yeah but what about our policy we, we're going to try and get a child tax credit they just don't get it that people do emotion look I took a class from Mark McKinnon in grad school. Mark is of course now the host of the, the circus on Showtime, but he's a famous ad maker for the Republicans uh, before that. And Mark taught a great story. And, and and the point was that storytelling hasn't changed from the caveman days. That a story, it, there's the hero's journey. That's what, uh, you know, the, the chief of the tribe in the cave would get up and say, our spears, the most powerful ones in the valley, with you know, we have slayed the mastodon, we slayed our enemies, you know. Oh, great story. He's not talking about, look, my policy for us is that everybody should have one fire <laughs> and it'd be equal amongst – no. You know? And I think from the day we were cavemen, we have to understand that there is an emotional aspect to our lives as human beings that has to be tapped into. And too often my Democratic colleagues like, yeah, but great policy. It's like, no you're fighting for the life. And right now, again, I have no patience for these. I mean, I look, criticize all that. I have no problem with that. But I also have no patience for the idea that we shouldn't be doing these. Things. We shouldn't be going after them every time we can. You take your shot. Uh, you know what it is. It's, it's no end of the military, right? We're, you're going to take a shot. Even if it just keeps their head down. Um, maybe you won't land every billet you send. But, you know, maybe you'll just suppress them a little bit. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. And so we make a lot of people uncomfortable because we're willing to take some shots and and, and put heads down instead of overthinking every piece of what we do and and go in commotions but I honestly my frustration right now with our politics is too many people are just not passionate you know they're they're not you should be angry that our capital was invaded. You should be angry that the guy running for uh governor in Virginia is saying one thing on right-wing media. He's going on Seb Gorka's show. He's going on Mark Levin's show. He's going on F and Steve Bannon's show saying one thing and then going on regular media and speeches saying a completely different thing. And, and those of us who highlight that are told, well, you shouldn't be echoing Steve Bannon. Like I'm not, I'm trying to get you to wake up. <laughs> and, and it's just this belief that if they put their head in the sand, that it will go away and and that doesn't work. you know evil doesn't go away just because you don't like it. you don't you want to ignore it. Um, the enemy gets a vote. and so I just uh, this' is a long as to a short question. but I, uh, <laughs> I guess I guess I guess it took me a little while to get comfortable, but I'm willing to be the guy that gets beat up um, for the right reasons.
0: I think it's obvious to those listening that we're talking on election day uh, in Virginia and around the country, but the, all eyes are on the Virginia gubernatorial. This is going to come out um, you know, after we know who won. Right. But it has become clear that part of the Republican playbook and the run-up to these elections is laying the groundwork to claim it was stolen. Yes, already. And that – is new. Yes, I mean you can point to a lot of things that we're upset about in our politics today that we've seen before, but the idea that we're not going to accept the results of an election and the fact that that idea has taken root within at this point a majority of Republicans who voted for Donald Trump um, that that is new and that is is really an
1: existential threat. It is. It is. I, I just this morning I was looking at a. Uh, yeah, it was a tweet from uh, yeah, a tweet from one of the right wing guys, um, Eric Erickson, and and literally every reply he showed he was showing his poll, showing that ends up by two points, and literally every response was, "You don't think the Democrats will allow that? They're going to steal it. They're going to stop it." It's like this ridiculous belief that somehow elections are easy to steal or they're commonly stolen is is become such a again, the, the Walter Schaub, who I love dearly, the former uh, government ethics lawyer, has been really really hitting President Biden hard. And his his criticism, and it's hard to disagree, is that you know Biden's only given one speech on voting rights. I like the Build Back Better plan. I like all of it. But all this is moot. Every single one of these spending packages and programs can be turned back, you know, in a heartbeat if we can't get people to vote. My colleagues at the Lincoln Project really say it well. Steve Schmidt, which, which you said you interviewed before, you know, Steve and Reid talk about a lot is, uh, you know, in many ways, the Republican Party right now, in the form that it's in now, is like a shrinking star. It's like a dying star. It's shrinking. It's it's getting smaller. You know, the, the minority... Uh, Rule is is what they need um, as the majority of their voters shrinks essentially. Uh, but if you know anything about astrophysics, you know that as a star shrinks, it gets hotter, more radioactive, and more dangerous till it freaking explodes. And I think a lot of people kind of fool themselves and believing that perhaps that explosion was January six. And I'm here to tell you that was nothing. That was a solar flare. You know what? What scares me is as their party desperately holds onto power, as they undermine our democratic institutions, um, unfettered. Um, it could lead to an explosion that nobody dreamed could possibly happen in America. But, but then again, none of our founding fathers dreamed a a president like Donald Trump who simply just didn't care about norms and traditions and ignored them. Uh, You know, it really showed how many of our institutions were unprepared for this moment. Get specific for us. What's the
0: worst case scenario? What do you really mean when you say a, a political supernova?
1: Well, I mean, violence, obviously, a larger violence, a large-scale violence, violence at, at state houses across the country, you know, actual, you know, murders, actual, you know, coordinated assaults on our democracy. Uh, maybe the next assault on Congress is more successful. Um, I do, in a, in a subtle framework, it's simply throwing out elections they don't like. Um, the Georgia, in theory, the Georgia legislature could just throw out an election. Well, sorry, it's tainted. We're we're getting rid of the election people. We're going to take it. I mean, literally the ability to throw out election results they don't like is what many of these people are pushing for, like in Arizona and elsewhere. They're literally trying to make it so that the, the Republican legislature can simply say, well, no, obviously, we have our doubts. We're not going to take that election. We're going to throw it out. to so they get the results they want? Literally, voting would be meaningless in our country. Um, but for me, I do have I have great fear of actual violence. I don't people are paying attention to what happened on January sixth. I don't think they're paying attention to the the growing movement of those who say, "Well, I think violence is the answer." I mean, you you can't ignore the people. At, at what point do you have to take it serious when people I – mean, when you listen, when they're saying they're going to shoot Joe Biden, when they say they're going to – you know, at, at what point do you take them seriously and somebody's going to do it? Um, I mean, I just don't recall this level um, of of threats. And and what bothers me the most is, is just how many people just want to ignore it like it isn't real. Uh, oh, it's just talk. Is it? Because there was a lot of – you read this Washington Post series right now about January 6th, and you should be horrified because there was a billion red flags going off. And it was ignored because people just like couldn't believe it. And and I'm just seeing a lot of us are out here saying, believe it. You have to believe it. I know I know it sounds outrageous that the American democracy could die in violence, but why would that be outrageous? It has happened throughout history. Why are we any different? Why are we so much more immune to it than anyone else throughout history has been? Um, if you would believe that we're that special that we we're not we're immune to that, I think you're gonna be just. Dis- I mean January sixth should just dis- dissuade dis- dis- you of that notion in, in every way possible.
0: How do you divide the the moral culpability for um for for all of this? Of of course you've got the the foot soldiers, the agitators, the ones who actually stormed the Capitol and and they need to be held accountable. The FBI has to do what it's gotta do. But then there are those who who held back, who know where the legal lines are, who fist pumped them on. I've gotta think that you have considered how to lay Lay blame fairly between those who actually carried the flagpoles and beat the cops, and those who stood back and cheered them on, but with language that they could disavow if they
1: had to. One hundred percent. I mean, that's they've gotten very good at. That you know, a lot of these guys—that's how they've managed to make it this far. They've managed to say, "Well, I had, you know, keep their fingerprints off of it." Uh, but you have to believe—you know—at at what point do we say? that this was encouraging violence. This is a sedition. You know, we just found out yesterday Margie Taylor Green spent $25,000 for ads on parlor encouraging people to come to the January 6th rallies. OK, well, where does a person who just got seated in Congress like three days before that event find that money and, and put that? You know, it's like there, there's real questions that had to be asked of those who organized these events and the delusions that they had nothing to do with the violence, being the violence was encouraged. Um, I am frustrated by the pace of the investigations, but I'm hopeful. I, I know Debra Riggleman, who's now working for the January 6th Committee. I, I, I know a few of the folks involved in that. I have faith that they understand the stakes that are in play here. But but at what point do we, we recognize that the organizers and those who encourage it – and then what's disheartening is the, the media, the propagandists. I mean, you know, we, we now see Fox in a full-on effort to – convince us the whole thing was fake. I mean, we, we've really got a very dangerous situation in America. There's so many institutions uh, that should be scary. Our, our political press is failing us in every possible way right now in their inability to avoid the both sidedism you know. we are Our institutions, like our government ethics watchdogs, are completely failing us because they have no idea how to deal with the things we're, we're seeing and, and, and the rules that we have in place are not being adjusted. Um, our electoral system is failing us because it can be manipulated by legislatures now. You know, I think... I think so many pieces of the puzzle that built this country and made it great were situated on people of good character and moral being, being the people in power. And we were unprepared for a moment where people who just want raw power and care nothing for the rules, whose sole functionality in life is to find holes in the rules, uh, are still in power. I mean, look at Kellyanne Conway. Look, Kellyanne Conway broke the Hatch Act like 60, 70 times. Nothing happened. You know, nothing because the system was designed it, it, that her boss would be mad about that. Her boss, like, great, go for it. They don't care. And so I think a lot of us get nervous when we realize that so much of our country was built on infrastructure and institutions that were never prepared for the modern world, never prepared for social media, never prepared for uh, media ecosystems that are separate from the rest. So uh, I don't know. Maybe I sound like I'm freaking out, but. That's possibly I am. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just, you know, and, and for a guy like in my position, in the work I've done when I was the executive director of Lincoln Project, especially when we had our own crisis, um, the death threats, the the kind of violent rhetoric that's thrown at us, it makes you really think, mm, at what point does someone actually take it seriously? You know, at what point does someone say, you know what, I'm going to, I mean, everybody forgets the 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 whole QAnon thing. It started with the whole pizza, you know, the guy showing come at ping pong pizza with and shooting up a pizza shop because Hillary Clinton had kids in the basement of an, a of a restaurant that didn't have a basement. Um, it's a miracle to me that more of those haven't occurred. Uh, but I do believe that day of reckoning may come sooner than we like. Do you have
0: any insight into? what the the provocateurs are are thinking. Like what's their and I'm talking about the ones who know better, the the Josh yeah. Hollies, the Josh Mandels, yeah. you know, two Power. two fellow Yale law grads. Like yeah. where do they think this ends? The the house they're setting on fire is right. is still the house they live in, it, right. you know, driving out the responsible voices like Kinsinger and Gonzalez. I, I mean they're gonna wind up in in a party that is is so extreme; it's it's gonna it's gonna destroy the country.
1: I honestly believe that most of these guys think they can control it; that it's they've got this under control; that that they don't understand the forces they're unleashing. Um, I, I honestly believe that there's this delusion that they can control it and they can take charge, and um, it won't blow up in their face too. But you know how it is; uh, when a, a raging wildfire gets lit, it, it burns everything. Um, and I think I think too many of them want the power that, you know, and they, and they, they're just, I mean, you you look at Eric Reitens, you look at Josh Mandel, JD Vance, why is JD Vance running at all? You know, why is, why is Peter Thiel buying an election? (laughs) You know, it's, 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 it's this lust for power, and they're they're willing to do whatever it takes, you know. And, and Holly is Josh. Hawley seems to have no morals. It's interesting being in Missouri now. Because we're watching the Republican contest. You got Josh Hawley as a center, but now you got Eric Greitens running. You've got Eric Schmidt, who's the Attorney General, who's basically spent the last year and a half using the power of his office to propel his senate campaign by by suing school districts for mask mandates by participating in the 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 lawsuits for you know the border like missouri doesn't have a border with mexico why are we (laughs) you know it, it you know it's just these men and mostly men um have forsaken the most basic instincts of appropriateness and the good of our country for power i mean i i used to really think that was crazy but they just want to be in the seat of power, um, and and then I you know. Sadly, I think the side of it is too that too many of Americans just don't even know what they should expect anymore. I think there's a large swath of America that thinks that their congressman's job is to just be on Fox News causing fucking trouble. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't know that those are the guys are supposed to go to for you know you know getting their kid home from Saudi Arabia deployment when his was grandma dies and helping out. You know, doing the most basic constituent services or being a representative of that organization of that that community. They just think. You know, it's great oh my god he's on Fox News again this is so good for us like how is it and how is Margie Taylor Green serving the people of Northern Georgia when she doesn't even sit on any committees you know it, it, she's not even representing them she has no power she just her big thing is going up and making floor speeches that no one listens to um, and going on oAN um, she's not a congressman she's a troll uh, and so um Ah, I'm just going off of the deep end. But it, it is, yeah, I do, I do believe that a lust for power, and, and let's let's be, it's funny, you know, you'll appreciate it, Ken. I was, I was in Iraq in 2003, and I was talking to my local Iraqi sheikh in my villages. I, I ran civil affairs around Q uh, West. And um, I never forget, I said, why are these men, you know, why are these kids doing these bombs? And what is he goes, it's, it's simple, it's simple. Like, I think anywhere, a, this is an Iraqi who's never left Iraq, money and power. You know, I was like, okay. It literally goes back to what you said about communications earlier. It goes back to the most basic things, money and power. It's it just sadly, how often can we trace um, so many of these individuals uh, from their humble roots to be multimillionaires and a lifetime of being called senator or whatever?
0: Yeah. Well, Fred, you have painted a sobering picture. Uh, I hope it's more than that and and a wake-up call. Keep doing what you're doing. Mostly, <laughs> fewer backfires. Um, but really, well, I, you know, I, my,
1: my boss, I'm, I'm a senior advisor now, so I'll, I'll caveat everything I said. I, I, don't, I don't do strategy at the organization, but I, I do I do coalitions and partnerships. But uh, you know, the the guys are, uh, you know, again, we'll take a shot. I wish more people would. Good. Um, We end the show
0: uh, every episode with the same question: What's the bravest decision you've ever
1: been a part of? I the first time Basam got a death threat, and by name, I said you got to quit. You know, you can't, you can't do this. And uh, and Basam's like, no, I can't stop now. You know, I've I've committed to this. I'm taking care of my family and the good of my country. Um, and then probably six months later he was dead. I've seen, you know, men like Hal Reichel and Mike Daniels, my crew from Desert Storm, who uh, did an intervention for our night vision goggle mission into Iraq during the air war, uh, because I was the lowest rated NVG pilot of our team, even though I was the platoon leader, and said, no, it only needs to be the the most senior pilots going into this dangerous environment, and they didn't return. Um, so I've seen a lot. That's a very difficult question to answer because I've seen very brave men and women make very difficult decisions that sometimes, too many times, led to their own deaths. Uh, so I wish I had a better answer, but I've seen, seen incredibly brave people do incredibly brave things in, a, in this life.
0: Well, thanks, Fred. And um, for what it's worth, that's why I ask it that way. I, I find that when I ask veterans the bravest decision they've ever made... They always point to someone else. And so, <laughs> you know, it's it's better, I think, to talk about the bravest decision you've ever been a part of. So I pr- yeah. appreciate your your perspective. Um, been an honor having you. Let's do it again.
1: Likewise. I appreciate the time. You got it.
0: Thanks again to Fred for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at at FP Wellman. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.